This morning's passage is not the lectionary text for the week, but one I chose mainly to remind me what Jesus' love is all about, but also hopefully to remind the rest of us too. The story comes in the last part of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, knowing that he is to be crucified the coming day. He meets with his disciples And all that is recorded in John from chapters 13 through 17 are Jesus' last words to him and of the Lord's Supper and of the foot washing. It is the foot washing text itself that I will lift up to you this morning coming from chapter 13 verses 1 through 17. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world to go to the Father. Having loved his dear companions, he continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time. The devil, by now, had Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe, and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with his apron. When he got to Simon Peter, Peter said, Master, you wash my feet? Jesus answered, You don't understand now what I'm doing, but it will be clear enough to you later. Peter persisted, you're not going to wash my feet ever. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you can't be part of what I'm doing. Master said, Peter, not only my feet, then wash my hands, wash my head, just like Peter to dive in, not knowing how to swim. Jesus said, if You've had a bath in the morning, Peter. You only need your feet washed now, and you're clean from head to toe. My concern, you understand, is holiness, not hygiene. So, now you're clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not every one of you. After he had finished washing their feet, he took his robe, put it back on, and went back to his place at the table. Then he said, do you understand what I have done for you? You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so, that is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. Yet, if you understand what I'm telling you, act like what I have done and live a blessed life. This is the word of the Lord. We are blessed to have this text before us today, and especially since we are not actually doing a foot washing, because it makes all of you a lot more at ease if you thought we were. 
once in my church in Atlanta, uh, they came to uh, a, a service uh, Monday, Thursday, and I had towels scattered around and a big basin of water up front. And I got to tell you, their anxiety was palpable. They started thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to have to take my socks off and have my feet washed or wash somebody else's feet? Well, in this case, there are lots of ways to wash feet and have our feet washed. And I'm grateful to you as a congregation to start off with for all the many ways that you've let me wash your feet and also all the many ways that you have washed my feet. It has been really an act of Christ's commandment which, by the way, is clearly mandated here and why we call it Maundy Thursday. The mandate, which is what the word Maundy comes from, is this. You have seen what I do in washing feet. Now you love others as I have loved you. That's your commandment. And how has he loved in washing feet? He's loved through deep humility while on his knees. The master washing the servant's feet rather than the servant washing the master's feet. He's loved by giving himself up to be nailed to a cross and crucified, suffering and shamed for the sake of love. That's what he means. That's the commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. Now you've heard me say, I get, all, I get all itchy when we start talking about Jesus' salvation on the cross because I sort of break into that theological tripe that inevitably comes out of me about salvation. And, and, and I remind you theologically, of course, that Jesus didn't die on the cross as a substitution for our sins to pay God who demands that price be paid, even though that's the general understanding in the Christian faith. I call that into question. Jesus died on the cross to satisfy our demand that a cost be paid because we're the ones who keep score. We're the ones who live in a prid quo, uh, what is the word? Cro- I had it this morning world. We keep score. And, and as long as the balance is out of whack, we can't live with it. There, there must be a price to pay. And so Christ dies on the cross, the, the last one, for our sake so that we will know inevitably and existentially that our guilt and our shame has been reconciled and we no longer have to carry it anymore. It is for us that Christ dies, not to satisfy God's judgment. I love theology. I went to seminary to learn this stuff. Four and a half years and a lot of money to get theologically trained. I learned Hebrew and Greek. I learned how to parse verbs. I learned how to diagram sentences. I learned about Christology and theology and Old Testament and New Testament. It was really hard. I was I was a pretty good student, believe it or not. And now I have a study in my office with a gazillion books that some of whom, which I've actually read, that nevertheless surround me with all of this 
theological and Christological and ecclesiological and eschatological stuff that tells me all the knowledge I need to know in hopes that I can understand and get closer to God. When all the while, looking back, all that's done is to protect me from the very closeness that I sought. Knowledge does that, you see. It's our way of protecting ourselves. I used to think that theology mattered more than anything else. Now, after 33 years of ministry, I've decided it's not even on the top five. Oftentimes when I preach a sermon, you come to me and say, thank you, Steve, for a sermon you really made me think. And I've decided that that's probably not what I wanted to happen. For what I really want to happen in my sermons is not so much that you think, but that you feel. That you actually experience something. That you would say to me, thank you, Steve, even though I don't agree, you touched me. And I have come to embody something in which you were saying and in which this worship service was all about. Thank you, Steve, you made my eyes water or you made me laugh or you made me see in a way I've never seen before or hear something embodied, something experienced about God's presence, not in your brains, not in my brain, but in our bodies For if we claim anything in our theology, it is this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If it is not embodied, if it's not experienced, if it is not a felt sense, then whatever it is going on in our heads cannot be trusted. Now, it's not a bad thing that we have brains. It's a good thing. Ever since the Greek school, when 2,500 years ago, when Aristotle began to claim of our objectivity of being able to learn information in our brains and being able to objectify that information, and the more we learn, the more powerful we got, which was at the time a pretty patriarchal way of seeing things. Obviously, the women were not included in that learning activity. And it gave one power, which is also its own patriarchal sense. And it was built on the fact that bodies aren't good. In the Greek thought, bodies are bad because, you know, they decay, they die, they emit foul odors and and weird stuff. You can't trust bodies, but you can trust the soul, the spirit of which the brain is part of. And out of that spirit, you see, it leaves the body and goes up to the seventh heaven because anything on earth embodied Again, it's, it's just waste. The key is to get away from your body in the Greek school, which was exactly 180 degrees opposite of the Hebrew understanding that there is no differentiation, there's no separation. Body, mind, spirit, soul, all intertwined in a, in a, in a wholeness, a unity of, of reality, not a split dualism. And then the Enlightenment comes along, and, you know, it's great. Even 
even more brainiac stuff, academies and institutions sprung up like McDonald's franchises all over the place. And people began to learn more. And that was good because it did away with the magic and all of the superstition that existed during the Dark Ages. Things became more rational and scientifically based and we began to understand how important knowledge was. That's a good thing. But we also, unfortunately, threw the baby out with the bath, or I should say the body out with the bath, and we began to neglect our body and the body, that is to say the world and earth and creation itself, to the extent that our brains took over. And we lost touch with what really matters. Bodies, the personal, closeness, relationships. You walk into a hospital, you sit down next to a, a, a church member, and a physician walks in four out of five times, walks over to the other side of the room, leans against the wall, looks at the chart, and begins to talk to the person in Latin about their problem. And they leave and then that person looks at me and says, what did he say? Every now and then a doctor walks in and pulls a chair up beside the bed and sits down beside that person and says, help me understand what's going on. One is over here with knowledge. The other is over here with presence, embodied They are there. They are willing to be there. They're willing to hear the narrative of that person. They understand that technology does, in a way, bring healing, but the primary energy for healing is always about presence. That the very presence of the physician heals as much as the technology the physician prescribes. Now, this is brand new thought, ha, ha, ha. Jesus understood this all along. That presence matters more than anything, which is why in every case he was touching those appropriately that needed healing. And in this case, he was taking off his robe and putting on a a towel and pouring water in a jar, a vase, and washing his disciples' feet. And as he's washing those feet, he's saying to them, this is my mandate. Love one another as I have loved you. And as he's doing it, they get it. It's an embodied love. All love is love, only when it's embodied. How many times have I talked to men, older men especially, who were accused by their family of not being present emotionally, and they say, well, I, they know I love them. Well, do you tell them that? No, but they know I love them. Well, how do you show it? Well, I go to work every day and I bring home a paycheck. They know I love them. Well, you don't know what love is unless it's, unless it's embodied. It, you can't know what love is unless it's present, unless it gives itself over, unless it touches you. Always in an appropriate way, of course. That goes without saying But love has to be embodied to be love. The word became flesh, 
and dwelt among us, the love of God became embodied in Jesus Christ, even unto the cross. That is to say that God's love for us is so deep that God will go to any length, even suffering, to embody that love. Good therapists know this too, of course. Good therapists know that, you know, it's not just about sitting over here apart from, objectively apart from your client. A good therapist is listening to the client, but also embodying that client's presence. The presence of the therapist is with the presence of the client, and the story is being told back and forth, and something's being shared. It's called mirror neurons. In human beings, we share these mirror neurons, and we see something in another, and then we mirror it back in ourselves. And what you see in the good therapist is love and the willingness to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death and even bring you to tears and bring themselves to tears. And that's completely appropriate if the therapist and the client cry together at the appropriate time. That, you see, is embodying the presence of God. And in a church, we baptize an infant cry or not, we're still embodying that presence as we hold that infant and put water on the head of him or her and the body of you stand up and you claim embodying this child into faith through Sunday school and through love and through support and through prayer. It's all about presence. And the Bibles that we give and the trips that we take and the and the volunteering that we do and all the service and progress and, pro- and, and programs that we offer each one of these kids is to embody in them what Christ's love is all about in hopes that in experiencing that love, they will then know it on their insides rather than just in their heads. And the key to this, you see, is you have to practice it. Love is always that which is practiced, and the more you practice it, the more you experience it. And all the other great virtues are kindness, gentleness, compassion, the gratitude. The more you practice it, the more you actually experience it. And I mean viscerally, you experience it, you feel it. So I was leaving church on Friday, and I was grumpy because I was having to work. It was a long week, been a long weekend, and, and it was about 11 o'clock, and I'm on the way home, and I'm on, I'm, I'm on Oak Street and King, and I pull up over the, over the double lines where people walk. I'm standing on top of them, and I look over to the left, and there's this, I don't know, older woman standing there looking at me, knowing that now she can't cross since I'm standing over the crosswalk. So she just beckons me to go ahead, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I should practice something here. So I looked in the, my little mirror and saw there was not a car behind me, so I put it in reverse and pulled back off the crosswalks, and she got this giant smile on her face, and I'm going, please go, please go, and as she walks by, she mouths the words, thank you, with a smile, and I'm smiling back, and all of a sudden, I'm not quite so grumpy, and so I roll down my window on the right when she's over here, and I, and I yell out of the window, blessings, stops dead in the street, turns back around with this giant smile on her face and says to me, and God bless you today. 
Not only did that change my mood, it changed my posture. It changed my whole countenance. It was an embodied experience of kindness. That's the way this works. Rachel Naomi Raymond tells of visiting her father in the hospital who had had heart surgery, uh, scar down his front and over to the side. Uh, And he had been there off two weeks, but he was fine, he was eating, and he was walking, but he was not talking. The nurses and doctors said, he's fine, he'll be fine, don't worry about him, but Rachel, his daughter, knew better because her father always talked and he always had an opinion and the fact that he was no longer saying a word was troublesome. So she went to his room and stood at the foot of his bed and began to talk to him and ask him questions and he never said a word. He lay there with his eyes closed looking feeble, she said. He wouldn't respond. So she saw hand cream on the side of of the bed and so she grabbed the bottle and went back to his feet and poured it in to her hands and began to massage his feet. She was washing his feet. And as she massaged his feet, she began to tell him the story of when she was four, he taught her how to ride a bicycle. And when she was five, he was with her when she went to kindergarten on her first day of class. And he wanted so many pictures to be taken that she was late to get in. And he was there when she made the safety patrol. And he he was there when she wanted her first date. In fact, he drove for her first date, giving them a chance to go out. He was there when she graduated from high school. And when she graduated from medical school, he was there. He gave her a big hug and said, congratulations, you've now joined the circus. And then he broke into tears. She's telling him all the time she's massaging his feet, looking at his feet. And all of a sudden, his foot moved. And she looked up, and he's smiling at her. And he talks. And he says, you know what? I'm a tough old bird. He used another word that I can't use here. I'm I'm a tough old bird. And you need me. And that's what it took. Her presence. Her presence massage, her narrative, her willingness to stand there with him and bring him back into a new place. That's what it means to love each other as Christ loves us. I give you a new commandment, he said, a new commandment. It's the way we learn how to live, and especially we we learn how to love. It's through the hands in the heart, in the eyes, and the ears, and all the other ways that we experience life. Experience it here, not so much here. Amen.